0: Well, as we go to the throne room of God, and that's exactly what we have here. If you have the little outline, I ask Karen to print it up again. You can see that we've worked our way through one section. We now come to the seven seals, chapters 4 through 7. And they're pretty easily divided. God's throne, the conquering lamb, and the seals being opened. Now, if we continue reading where we left off in Revelation 4... In the center of the throne and in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. That's where we left off. That's verse 6. Think about those four living creatures with me for a moment. And I want you to look with me at several passages of Scripture. First, we want to go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, there are two kinds of creatures near the throne of God in heaven. In Isaiah chapter 6, begin reading there on page 1068, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seating, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice, at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And what's Isaiah's reaction to this? It's universally the reaction of honest humans when they encounter God in his majesty. And what is it? Woe to me, I'm, a, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, these are seraphs, and the seraphs are not the same as the cherubs. They're cherubs and they're seraphs, and there are probably many other creatures. Uh, I was thinking, all creatures, great and small. Let's see, that's that nice... British film uh, series. Um, All things wise and wonderful, all creatures great and small. Think about it. These are created by God. The word that's translated seraph is exactly the same Hebrew word to describe the fiery snakes that bit the Israelites in the wilderness. Because the word seraph refers to a burning one, a burning one, those fiery serpents in the wilderness that bit the children of Israel. And so God's throne has at least two very strange creatures around it, the seraphs. The seraphs have six wings. But notice they sing the same thing that we sing sung in heaven. And that is in verse 8. Of, you don't need to turn back to Revelation uh, 4, 8. But they day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So that's taken from Isaiah 6, the seraphs. The seraphs are distinct from the cherubs. Now, let's look at another passage of Scripture. Let's turn right and go over to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. And we look at this. Page 1286. I looked and I saw a world, a windstorm coming out of the north. So if this is north... Then Ezekiel is in the south, and he's looking north, and he's seeing this whirlwind, this great storm coming out of the north. And this is an important thing to get in our minds, because we're going to see something, I think, fairly interesting as the whole Bible ties together. And what happens is, of course, in Ezekiel, the great enemies of God come out of the north, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, they all come out of the north. And so what Ezekiel is seeing in his vision is this great storm that precedes all of the things that God shows him in the whole book. Now look at what we see in verse 4. I looked, Ezekiel 1.4, I saw a a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like Four living creatures, in appearance their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. Now look at this next two; uh, these next two verses. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved. Now look at verse 10. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. Each of the four had a face of a man. That means looking from the south, looking north, he saw the four creatures. And what he saw was a human face, a human face. And then he sees on the right side, each had the face of a lion. Now, if you're, if you're looking north from the south, you're going to see on the right side, that would be east. So he would see a lion's face uh, this way. And then he says, and on the left, the face of an ox. And so if this is north, then the ox is on the west or on the left side. Now, I want you to see something really strange. Because in God's Word, the Bible has themes that run through it all the way from Genesis into Revelation. And no book of the Bible contains more allusions to the Old Testament than the book of Revelation. So now I want you to turn with me to one of those yawning chapters. You know what the yawning chapters are. The Bible's real exciting until you get to Mount Sinai uh, around uh, Exodus 20. And then it starts giving us all this stuff. And, we, and by the time we get to Numbers... And it's called Numbers because it begins by numbering God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai and then numbering them again before they enter into the Promised Land. That's why it's called Numbers. So I want you to go to one of the great yawning chapters of the Bible. And there really are not any yawning chapters. I say that jokingly. But people oftentimes commit to reading the Bible and then they get bogged down. If nothing else bogs you down, Leviticus surely will. But over here on page 205, you find Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. Now, in Numbers 2, the camp of the Israelites is described and prescribed. This is how you're to have the camp. Now, let's look at it for a moment. He says, The Lord said to Moses in verse 1 and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each man under his standard, with the banners of his family. Now, on the east, on the east, he says, toward the sunrise, the divisions of the camp of Judah are to be encamped under their standard. Now notice, you have four Chief standards. You see, the tribe of Issachar and the tribe of Zebulun march under the banner of Judah. Okay? So, camped on the east is the banner of Judah. Then as you go down on the south, and the south would be down here, and that would be what Ezekiel would be seeing as he's looking north. On the south, he, he says, will be the divisions of the camp of Reuben under their standard. And then he goes on, and next page, and you've got these other... Uh, people camping there. And then there's the temp of, tent of meeting and on, in verse 18 of chapter 2, on the west will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim under their standard. And you go on and, and there. And then finally on the north, verse 25 will be the divisions of the camp of Dan. Now let me say something to you that I think you might find very interesting. I hope you will. What was... The standard, what was on the banner for the tribe of Judah? Does anyone want to guess what it would be? A lion, lion, yes. We all are familiar with that, aren't we? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So for the tribe of Judah, they were to set out first. They had a banner of a lion, okay? Now, as you go around and you get on the south side, you have a human head. And the human head was the symbol of the tribe of Reuben. Why? Reuben was the firstborn of his father. But he defiled his father's couch, and therefore he lost his position as firstborn. But the Hebrew word for first is rosh. It's also the word for head. And so the standard for the tribe of Reuben was a human face or a human head. And then as you travel around, uh, you, you get to the next one, and that is the uh, Ephraim. And what do you think would have been the standard for the camp of Ephraim? And this is by rabbinical tradition, by the way. Uh, the standard for Ephraim was a calf or an ox, and these things go back to what Daddy said before he died in Egypt. All of his blessings and curses he put on his voice before he left the earth. So the standard for Ephraim is an ox or a calf's head. Now we get to the north. And, uh, in, and that's verse 38 of, of Numbers 2. The standard for the tribe of Dan... What is the greatest enemy of a a poisonous snake? I'm not talking about a mongoose here. It's the eagle. And so, you remember what Jacob said about his son Dan before he died? He said, "He he is a snake jumping up to bite the ankles of horses. Wow. Well, the children of Dan when they're living in Egypt, didn't like that. How would you like So you know, Daddy was just a snake in the grass. He He was crooked as a rattlesnake. So what did they do? They swapped the symbol for their tribe from the snake to the eagle. Now think with me, if you will. You're Ezekiel. You're standing in the south, which is where Ezekiel has the perspective of the Holy Land, even though he's in exile. He sees this whirlwind coming out of the north, and as he looks, he sees that the first of these creatures has a human face. That's the banner of the tribe of Reuben. And then he looks and he sees he sees the face of a lion, and he sees the face of a calf. And then finally, we're simply told that the back face is that of an eagle. I think that's interesting. And why I think that's interesting is it just shows us that the, quote, yawning chapters of the Bible really have great nuggets of truth embedded in them. And so these are cherubim. And the cherubim, if we, if we look at them, uh, the cherubim are the are the creatures that bear the throne of God. What's the difference in a cherub and a seraph? A cherub has four wings, a seraph has six. But they evidently all have a variety of faces. And so what we see is we go back to Revelation chapter 4, as, as John is caught up into heaven, as he's seeing the things that are happening, he sees... Creatures that seem to be a blend of both cherubs and seraphs because it's interesting, it's like a dream. You know, dreams repeat themselves. You wake up a little bit and you fall back asleep and you kind of get the same dream, but it's modified a little bit and there are fuzzy things in it. The point of, of this in Revelation 4 is that what John sees in heaven is not so that we'll be fascinated by these cherubs or seraphs, but we'll be fascinated by the one they serve. The cherubs are God's chariot, and that's why the Ark of the Covenant is covered by two cherubs whose wings stretch out over it. They are the chariot of the Lord. The cherubs are. But the seraphs seem to be special guardians of the holiness of God. The burning ones. Remember the same Hebrew word describes is used to describe the fiery uh, snakes that bit the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness. And so here's what he sees. And he also sees something else. He sees in verse 5, Revelation 4, uh, 5... He says, "Before the throne, seven lamps were burning, were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Now does God have seven spirits? And the answer to that is no. And yes. And if you go back to the very first chapter where John has the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's speaking him with a voice uh, that is like a trumpet. A very loud voice, a loud voice that shakes the earth, is the same Christ who's speaking to John now about future things. And then we're told about the seven spirits of God. Why is the Holy Spirit described as seven spirits? I'm going to tell you exactly why. The Holy Spirit is one person. The Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and distinct from the Son. Only one person. But if you look at Revelation chapter 1 for a moment, you, just, you see something very plain. And that's this, that in Revelation 1.12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now... What is the basic truth? Where is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is in every believer. So, in terms of a manifestation of the one Spirit of God, I'm going to say in a judgment of charity, I see 25 Holy Spirits here today. If you want to think of it, that's probably a poor estimate. But... uh, What's the point of Revelation 1? Jesus is in the middle of those seven churches. And Jesus' Holy Spirit is in the middle of of the church. So, as we pray coming into church with an ancient prayer of the church, uh, calling on the Spirit to come, is the Holy Spirit here this morning in Trinity Presbyterian Church? Is He? Yes, He is here. The Holy Spirit is here. What about... First Baptist Church. I don't know First Baptist, but I'm going to give it a judgment of charity and say that the Holy Spirit is there. And I'm going to say the Holy Spirit is in another church, in another church. The point of, of using seven, not only because seven is the number of completion or fullness, but because the whole book is written in that theme of seven. And the point is that the Holy Spirit is present in the church of Ephesus, but he's no less present in the church of Laodicea or the church of Smyrna. You see, the Spirit of God is present in every cluster of God's people. For where two or three are gathered together in my name said Jesus, there I am in the midst. And notice something else in the upper room discourse Jesus tells us through the Holy Spirit the Father and the Son together dwell in every believer. So what we're going to say is is God the Father here? Yes he is. Is God the Son here? Yes he is. How are they here? They're here through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is present in Trinity Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And He's also present in every gospel preaching church in Texarkana, Arkansas, and Texas. He's present everywhere. And so the point is, in chapter 1, Jesus is present in the church, in the seven churches of Asia Minor. And He's present by the Holy Spirit. So going back to Revelation chapter 4 for a minute... In Revelation chapter 4, we're in a totally new thing. Up to this point, Revelation has been focused on the things that were going on during the lifetime of the Apostle John as he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. But something new happens in chapter 4. He is caught up to heaven. Now, is this a picture of the church being taken off the earth? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But it is this. Revelation 4 is the beginning of the prophetic element of the book of Revelation. And notice what he says there. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, page 1917, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so the Apostle John is caught up, into heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about it. When you and I worship, the Holy Spirit catches us up and seats us in heavenly places in Christ. But notice something that's very striking here. Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. Have you ever thought about the musts? The must what is necessary, what has to happen after this. John is given a revelation of the future beginning in chapter 4. And as he's given a revelation about the future, he's told that these things must take place. They have to take place. They're going to take place. And as you and I live in a world of chaos of confusion, of false information constantly being regurgitated out in a variety of ways, in a variety of places, photographs doctored to make things look worse than they are, all kinds of stuff. I mean, honestly, I can say I haven't a clue what's really going on in this world. That's why I don't watch television news. (laughs) I like to read news from different newspapers in different parts of the world. I get a little better perspective. But even with all of that, it's just confusion and nonsense. Who's in charge? Who's pulling Joe Biden's strings? I don't know. You know what? It doesn't make any difference. Because Joe Biden is doing exactly what he has to do. Who's pulling his strings? I don't know. I don't know, somebody's pulling them. But you know what? Somebody's pulling your strings too. And somebody's pulling my strings too. But you know what's really important to remember? When you look at the news, when you see border patrol agents represented one way, and then you you study it and realize that's not exactly what's going on, and you understand that news media is all slanted, Has there ever been objective reporting anywhere by anybody? Absolutely not. Whenever I'm in a conflict, the first thing I do after I get away from people is write down what happened. I write it down, type it out, type out the outline first and then fill it out as much as I can and so that it may run five or six pages. And then I put it away. And sometimes after years have passed, and I pick up the document. I said, What? That didn't happen that way. <laughs> well, the eyewitness who wrote it wrote it that way. The point is, I'm not objective about my own history. Why do you expect somebody on NBC or CBS or CNN or Fox or what have you to be objective? There's no objectivity among human beings because part of the effect of the fall is our intellectual ability was contaminated by sin. But where is a book that we can look to to tell us the truth? You want me to tell you what's going on, on in planet Earth right now in the White House and who's really pulling the strings? Well, who's ultimately pulling the strings is none other than Almighty God. That's the picture that we get in the first part of chapter 4. God is on His throne and He is revealing To John the Apostle, the things that must take place. Is this world going to go through suffering? Oh, yes. Is this world going to see revival? I believe so, yes. And is Christ going to return? Well, absolutely. There are things that must take place. Things that must take place. I believe that the book of Romans teaches pretty strongly that the Jewish people in mass will be converted to Christ. And i wait for that. That means revival. I also believe that the Bible teaches great persecution awaits God's people. The point is to a suffering people in Asia Minor, the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing to them, taking them into the very throne room of Almighty God, and He's revealing to to God's servant, the Apostle John, so He'll write it down. The things that must take place. Now, for the world, the must things aren't good things. But for believers, the must things are good things. So if you have to go through suffering, and every single person in this room has gone through suffering without exception, because Bennett's not in here, but he'd probably say, oh, Mr. Bob, (laughs) I've gone through plenty of suffering. You don't know what it's like when I get in trouble but no we all have gone through trouble and and you know this is what I have to say to you as your pastor it ain't over you're going to go through more suffering you're going to go through more trials you're going to go through more temptations the government that we see in this country unless God sends revival it's going to get worse and persecution is coming what's our comfort in that it must take place. It must. Why? Because the muster, if you want to put it that way, bad grammar, the muster is whom? Not just our Father, but our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you so much that he left the glory of heaven to come down to this earth to die in your place. You see, the hand that controls it all, with the things that must take place in the future is a sovereign hand. And we'll see more of that God willing in two weeks, because next week you're going to have an EPC pastor who is a retired army colonel named Bruce Rucks. He'll be preaching for me because I have to install a pastor in South Louisiana and, uh, So I won't be here. But in two weeks, God willing, uh, we will pick this back up with the things that must, they got to happen. They have to happen. And when God has a have to happen for you and me, you know that it's a loving hand behind it. Let's pray. Lord, comfort us and encourage us in the middle of a world of chaos and confusion, of deception and lies and manipulation of truth, Lord, to remember this, your word is absolutely true. And you have promised us in the middle of the things that are happening in this world that more has to happen. But as it's happening, it's happening from our loving Heavenly Father. Comfort and encourage us, we pray, as we think about these wonderful, awesome creatures, seraphs, burning ones, And cherubs, who are your very chariot. Lord, but beyond them. Lord, at him who is indescribably glorious and magnificent. Even you, our Father. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.